with the subject of the conscience, probably a, a two a two or three week series, and uh, we're going to be going all over the scripture. It's going to be a topical sermon, but I do want to read Genesis 3, 1 through 19 today, and then I'll read you just uh, one verse from the life of Paul. If you're wanting to follow along as well in an outline, there's a detailed outline for today's part of the uh, extended series, and it uh, should be on the back table. Genesis 3, 1 through 19. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to, me, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And one more scripture, Acts uh, 24.16, I'll just read it for you quickly. This one says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Amen. Father God, as we look at this uh, subject that has brought confusion to so many minds, I pray that you would give illumination, open our understanding so that we can uh, know what it is that uh, the conscience should be like and how it is that we can train and uh, 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 realign the conscience. And I just pray that you would be glorified, we would be built up, and we would be better equipped to serve you as a result of this, uh, uh, living out this sermon. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
You may be seated. <clears throat> now, I'm preparing to preach through the book of Esther. It's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a difficult one to break up because to get the feel for any one part, you almost have to have the whole story. But there are so many valuable lessons in that book. I've always wanted to preach on it. But before we actually get to Esther, there are some topics that I want to uh, deal with that I think are troubling to Christians. And uh, this one, um, the conscience, I think is a very, very important one. Sometimes people assume that because their conscience is not troubling them that everything's okay. Their conscience is working just super. That's not necessarily the case because sometimes Scripture says our consciences... Uh, can be seared, they can be hardened, where they don't feel anything in terms of the violation of God's laws. And uh, it really does take work. As Paul says, I strive, I'm working hard to have a conscience that's without offense. It takes work. And uh, in a later sermon, we're going to be dealing with some of that hard work, what it means to realign the conscience. But today I want to look at the nature of that uh, conscience, uh, one man facetiously defined the conscience as the little voice inside of us that tells us not to do something when it's too late, <laughs> you know, when you've already done it. And I think that's the way we've experienced our conscience working many times. So many times for Christians, their conscience is so insensitive that the only time it kicks in, or at least that they feel that it is kicked in, is after they've done the sin and they've already been caught and it's too late. And uh, some people have experienced the, the painful side of the conscience so much that they assume that it could not have been something that Adam and Eve had before the fall. This is something that God put into them after the fall, and that it would be uh, wrong thinking. Uh, I believe that there's both a negative and a positive side to the conscience, and the positive side is an affirmation of approval. It's the sense of peace that we may have within us. And God gave both the positive and the negative side of the conscience to Adam and to Eve before they fell. Now, let me quickly give you the three parts of the, of the conscience, and they're listed for you there in your outline. Um, the first element is the sense of law that man has. I think you recognize that's part of the image of God and man, right? God has put within them the, the understanding that stealing is wrong. And, uh, and they do have a sense of obligation. Now, that's twisted many times by, um, well, it's always twisted, an unregenerate man. Uh, there's an orientation of that that is wrong. But the sense of obligation to do right and the sense of obligation to avoid doing wrong is built right into man. The second essential element of a conscience is that which is called the judicial element. First part you'd call the legislative element. Now, legislatures really should not be creating new laws. Uh, they should be uh, govern governing the nation in terms of the laws of God. They're applying the principles of Scripture to life. But many times we find our consciences doing exactly the same thing. They're succumbing to things that God has never given in His Word. In fact, they're in contradiction to what God's Word has to say. And so we can have the same problems that the legislative branch in our country has in terms of alignment to God's law. But the first part is legi legislative. The second part 
is the judicial element, and it's the ability of man to pass judgments on his own actions. Is this thing that I did or I'm contemplating doing, is it something that's good or is it something that is bad? We, we can pass judgment of not guilty. We can pass judgment of guilty and have an approval, but our, our conscience acts as a judge. The third element, since we're, we're labeling it in terms of uh, the three powers of government in our nation, the third element would be the executive element of the uh, conscience. And the executive, some people call it the punitive uh, side, it carries out or it executes a punishment of pain. So you've got the law, you've got the judge, and then you've got the executive. Now, if you, if you liken it to, <clears throat> to uh, government, if you look in Romans chapter 13, it says that the executive branch of the government has the responsibility not just to bear the sword in vain, but also to give praise to that which is good. So it's not just negative. Okay, there's both sides to the executive and government. The same would be true in terms of our conscience. Our conscience praises when we're doing that which is right, and it, it condemns when we do that which is wrong. And the kind of things that we feel inside, it's carrying out the penalty, okay? It's the sword, as it were, in our life. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel distress. We feel torment inside. We feel conviction. That'd be the negative side. The positive side would be a sense of approval, satisfaction, peace in our actions. Romans 2.15 speaks of the conscience either accusing or else excusing our behavior. It either disapproves or it gives approval. And the sense of that would be the executive function. Okay, so if you have those three, I think you've pretty much captured it. Now, some people put a fourth element in there. And if you want to write that down, you're welcome to. It's uh, the predictive element. In other words, it has an ability to anticipate that if I do a given action, others will approve or they will disapprove of this action, or that God will. Now, too frequently with us, it's others. It's not God, okay? But I think that that fourth element really is wrapped up. It's involved in the first three elements that are there. But if you want, you can, you can put a fourth point in there that there is a predictive element uh, to, uh, to the conscience as well. Now, because the conscience is so frequently associated with pain, many people, again, like I said earlier, they assume it had to have come into being after. God wouldn't have put pain beforehand, would he? Uh, it had to have come in, into play after the fall. But I think that that is wrong. And I want to just give a little bit of a, a theology of the conscience. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, I'll just read the aspect of the image of God that he placed within us. And then we'll do some application. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you study the doctrine of the image of God, what is, what, what is compromise, uh, com what is it com comprised of? you'll see that it's comprised of things like the ability to take dominion, uh, the, the sense of eternity that is in our hearts, um, logic, the ability to communicate. But 
the three elements that we've just talked about, uh, the conscience is also a part of the dominion, I mean, a part of God's image that is within man. It's, it's kind of a faint, finite reflection of God himself. Let's just go through the three. You look at the first part of the image of God in man. Is there a sense of law? Almost everybody universally recognizes that the law placed upon the heart of man is part of God's image. Okay, so there's part of the conscience that's reflected in the image of God. What about the aspect of being able to judge our actions, whether they are appropriate or they're not appropriate? I think dominion, which people acknowledge, okay, that's part of the image of God in man. Dominion presupposes the ability for us to judge our actions. Is this the proper direction or is this not the proper direction to take for a dominion that's under God? And then the third element of pain, you know, the executive, or the sense of peace or approval or satisfaction, I think was there as well. Uh, not only did God command Adam and Eve, don't you dare eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he also gave the warning of what would happen. And so Adam and Eve, in fact, we'll look in chapter 3, she's able to anticipate that. Adam and Eve knew that there would be death as a result of eating. Now, they had never experienced death, they'd never experienced pain, but they knew uh, that death or pain could be a product of their sin, would, would be, and they also, I think Adam had a sense of satisfaction after he named the, the animals of uh, his dominion under the Lord. So all three aspects, I think, are involved in the image of God and man. Now, let's take a look at Genesis 3, and this still is before the fall, and you can see these three things being worked out in uh, these verses here. Genesis 3, just 1 through 3, says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, now, her answer to this point shows very obviously she's got a sense of obligation. She knows what God has commanded. She knows the positive, that you can eat. Satan had tried to de deny it, saying that God was saying, oh, you can't eat of anything. And, uh, and she says, no, we can eat that. There's the positive. We're not to eat this. So she has that sense of obligation. Secondly, Satan appeals to the second element of the conscience, the ability to judge your actions. And instead of having her align that sense of judgment to God, it's aligning it independently. He wants her to make independent judgments as to what is right and what is wrong. So there's the judging aspect. And then the next phrase shows the sense of approval or the sense of condemnation that would happen. Um, and then there's the predictive element there as well, lest you die. And uh, I think it can be shown that there's an anticipation of what other creatures would think of both Adam and Eve. Now, you can see it before the fall. What about after the fall when it becomes distorted? We believe in total depravity, which does not mean that man cannot get worse than he is, because the scripture speaks of different levels of the conscience being defiled by sin. It speaks of uh, the conscience being weak. It speaks of it being hardened. It speaks of it being seared. And it speaks of a conscience that is dead. And so there's different degrees of depravity. 
But when we say total depravity, we're not talking about the intensity of how strongly affected by sin a person may be, but that the totality of his being, every aspect of his psyche, of his mind, of his will, of his body, is impacted by sin. And uh, we, we see that immediately in Adam and Eve. Already in verse 7, they sensed their obligation to God's law. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves a covering. Now, this is a perverted sense of obligation. They're trying to hide the evidence. And this is really the first uh, example, crude example, of self-righteousness. If you can't meet the obligation, okay, you try to make a substitute with some covering of your own. But it's a sense of obligation that makes them hide and... Uh, uh, cover themselves. In verse 8, you see the second element of the conscience passing judgment on their actions. Okay, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, they know that their coverings are useless. That's why they're hiding. So they're able to make a judgment. Is this satisfactory? Is this not? And it's just not letting them get off the hook. They're internally in a courtroom, you know, and they're being judged as guilty. And the fact that they're hiding shows that they recognize their guilty verdict. And then in verse 10, we see the third aspect. It says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Okay, this fear that they're experiencing within, that's the executive part of the conscience. It's troubling them. It's executing a pain within them, some penalty that, that, that comes as a result of what they have gone through. Now, I've added uh, a whole bunch of verses to your outline that I'm not going to go over, but it's because I want to make it absolutely as clear as I can make it that there was no change in terms of the components of the conscience before the fall to after the fall. No change whatsoever. The conscience is still the conscience. The change comes because of the impact of sin. There's a new orientation that the conscience takes. Now, this is going to be very important to understand for how we change the conscience in the next, uh, th- uh, next uh, lesson. This lesson is just looking, what does a good conscience look like? What does a bad conscience look like? And we've got to see, in terms of the components of the conscience, there has been no change before or after, uh, after the fall. It can become progressively hard- hardened and more and more insensitive, but uh, the conscience continues to function. Now, let's just apply some of this to the contemporary scene. Uh, in secular psychology, one of the things that I have seen happen numerous times, especially in one of the psychiatric clinics uh, in town, is that uh, some of the psychiatrists run across people who have consciences that are troubling them when they really should not be troubled. And we're going to be seeing God's way of dealing with that problem. But what they have sought to do is they have sought to desensitize the conscience and make the conscience to be more and more feeble in its working. Now, to me, this is as silly as seeing a, on your dashboard of your car, the lights are blinking on and warning you, okay, your oil is low. And you check your oil and it's not low and... And and so you get so frustrated with this light continually blinking that uh, you take a hammer and you smash the light. 
Okay, now it's not bothering me anymore. But now it's not functioning anymore either, right? It's not going to ever warn you when the oil does get low. And so just because it is, it is, it is working in a faulty way does not mean we should desensitize it. What the people are doing who desensitize the conscience of others is that they are deliberately trying to deface part of the image of God in man. Okay? Now, they recognize that people will act psychologically abnormal in many ways. Adam and Eve are acting very abnormal. It's rather silly to cover themselves with leaves uh, to the God who sees through all things. I mean, who are they trying to hide from? They're trying to hide from God. And it may seem like a rather primitive attempt, you know. How do we cover ourselves from, from God? Uh, but there's just different levels of sophistication that we develop over time. Very uh, abnormal. But I want you to notice what God does here. God does not desensitize their conscience. In fact, he uses their conscience as a tool where they immediately, intuitively recognize that what he says is exactly right. And then he realigns the conscience through grace. And that's the, that's the step that uh, the Lord takes. Too many times churches spend uh, 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 no time in realigning or educating the conscience. Instead, they've got people who feel very guilty about things that the Bible blesses as being good things. And here is this dashboard light that's continuing to blink at them. And so they're constantly stopping. They're saying, okay, we can't engage in that activity that the Scripture says is a free activity that we can engage in. And so the, con the, the, the churches, they say, because their lights are blinking, everybody else needs to engage in the same behavior that these people are engaging in. Okay, And so the church begins to be governed by the weaker brother's conscience. They turn completely upside down the instructions that Paul gave. Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 14 says there's some people think that they can't eat meat. <clears throat> he does not say that the weaker brother, everybody should become a weaker brother. Instead he says, no, you're weak. You need to educate your conscience. I'm going to help you to educate your conscience. Until it is educated though, don't be ignoring that conscience. Don't be smashing the light on the panel. That light's going to prove to be very, very good, so don't, we don't want you hardening your conscience. That's what he is saying. But the educational process uh, is very important for us to come through. Now, I want you to turn to uh, John chapter 16, because some people treat the conscience as if it's an infallible voice. They even speak of the conscience as being the voice of God. That is wrong. The conscience is not the voice of God. The conscience is the tool that God can use, but Satan can use it and people can use it. It can become totally misaligned so that rather than feeling guilty over the things that God has told us we should feel guilty over, it feels guilty when men dictate their laws to us. So let's take a look at John chapter 16. And uh, the first couple verses that I want to read are verses that show that the Spirit is still working upon unregenerate people. John 16, verses 8 through 11. It says, And when he, and it's referring to the Spirit there, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, so the Spirit is addressing all three elements of the, of the conscience, even in unbelievers. And we speak of this as being common grace or God's restraining grace that he puts uh, upon people. Now, um, at times he allows nations to be given over to their lusts. In Romans 1, it talks about them handing them over, uh, delivering them over under their own depraved imaginations. But they have their conscience. Otherwise, it wouldn't be talking about it being hardened, depraved, misaligned, evil conscience, etc., etc. John chapter 1 words it this way. This was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. So the moment any person is born into the world, God gives them light. He gives them a sense of the knowledge of his law. He gives them the ability to make judgments. And he knows because of their depravity, they're going to be using it in rebellion against him. But God enlightens every man that comes into the world. <clears throat> now, with that as a background, I want you to look at John 16 and verses 2 through 3. Here is a case where people are convicted in their consciences about something being right that God says is wrong. It's an abomination. It says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God surface. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So here's people who are treating as a good service to God. Their conscience approves of something that God absolutely disapproves of. Let me give you another verse. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He is saying it is possible for your consciences to be so mixed up and so turned around that you actually call something that God blesses evil. And you turn around and you call something God calls an abomination something that is good. Has that happened in our nation? I think we can see plenty of examples of this uh, happening in our nation. Never think of the conscience as a reliable guide. The scriptures are a reliable guide. And Paul says, I strive to have a conscience that is void of offense. He has to work at it. It is not a reliable guide. He has to work at making it uh, more reliable. And that is why it is so foolish to have Christians say, you know, when you point out some area in which their life is out of alignment with God's word, and they say, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me of that yet. And you say, yes, he has, right here. It says this in the Bible, what you're doing is wrong. Well, I agree, it says that, but the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me yet. What they're saying is, my conscience is not working, and therefore it's okay, right? If the Spirit has not convicted me of it yet. And that is a terribly dangerous place to be because if you can look at the Bible and you can see some commandment of God and it doesn't bother you at all, that means your conscience is in a progressively hardening uh, 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 downward slide. The conscience has to be instructed. It has to be put into line. This passage indicates there are people whose consciences didn't bother them at all. They killed these people and they thought they were doing God a service. The conscience many times has to be turned around. Now, Paul does indicate in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 14 that you do not make people violate their consciences 
just especially if it's a thing that's neither here nor there, you know, whether a person eats pork or doesn't eat pork or eats meat or just eats vegetables, it's not going to kill them if they do that. So he says, don't force this person, here, have some pork, you know, or here, have a beer or something like that. You don't try to make the person go against their conscience because that's making them smash their, their light on their panel, right? Instead, what you do is you educate them. You say, you know, what you're doing is really, a, you're doing as a weaker brother, the scripture gives liberties, and the law is the perfect law of liberty. You ought not to align your conscience uh, with the laws of man, but rather do it with the laws of God. Um, let me have you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now let's just stop there. We'll continue in a moment. If you were to put a hot iron, a brand, something red hot on your flesh, and you just left it there long enough where it burnt through the skin and into the flesh, once that heals, because of the nerve damage that's there, you're going to have no feeling. So he's using that analogy to say your conscience has been seared with a hot iron. In these areas, you have no feeling. It does not bother you in the least that you're speaking lies, that you're hypocritical in your religion, and that you're following after false doctrine. You've done it so long, and you've persisted in your false doctrine, you don't even recognize what is right and what is not right. You're hardened. You're, you're, you've, been seared. you've been seared within. Now here's the irony. These people have an insensitive conscience to what God says they should be sensitive to, but they are very, very sensitive in their conscience to what other people disapprove of or approve of. They're very, very conscious of that. Here's, here's the point. God has designed the conscience that it has to submit to laws. If it does not submit to God's laws, it's autom automatically going to begin submitting to other people's laws. Here's the sad thing. Many people are far more sensitive to the laws that uh, man has staged in the, in the state, and their conscience is guilty. If they violate something maybe that, that's not even a biblical law that the state has said, well, it's wrong because the state says it's wrong. But they're not at all exercised in conscience over things that the Bible says that they ought to be. And so here's a, a situation that uh, I think informs us on how we educate our children. Do we, when we are disciplining our children for their inappropriate behavior, do we just tell them, do it because I say so, that's man's law, or do we say, you need to do it because God says... Children, obey your parents and the Lord. He has given us authority. We need to instruct you. And if you don't obey me, you're disobeying God. Always bringing the nurture and the admonition of the Lord into our discipline. If it's just your word that their conscience is aligned to, you are turning your children into humanists. Good humanists, but they're humanists. Why? Because the only time they feel guilty is when it's the approval or the disapproval of some man out there. You've conditioned their consciences into saying, 
you're okay because nobody is disapproving of your behavior. Rather than saying, everybody's approving, but does God approve? You see that? The law of God has got to infiltrate into our children's consciences. Otherwise, here's, here's what could happen. Here's the irony with them. They're not convicted about their lies, their hypocrisy, their false doctrines, but they're very, very exercised over things that God says are okay. And they say, no, they're wrong. Look at verse 3. Forbidding to marry. Now you'd think, who would forbid anybody to marry? Well, Roman Catholic Church says it's a sin for priests to get married. Uh, <clears throat> there are countless people down through history and church history who have thought getting married was not only a lesser way which Scripture d denies, but that it was actually every time there were sexual relations with your wife that it was sin that you had to confess and repent of. And so what God has blessed, what God has called honorable, what God has said, the marriage bed is pure and undefiled, they have said it is impure. And so forbidding to marry was one of them. Here's some more. And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. There are many Christians uh, nowadays, uh, some entire denominations, who have real conscience issues over food that they eat. Some people are vegetarians. They feel it's sinful to eat meat. Paul says there were people in Corinth who were exercised over exactly the same things. There were some people in Rome who were troubled uh, over that. And how did Paul deal with them? He saw this light that was blinking, kept blinking. Oh, you're sinning when you eat meat. You're sinning when you drink wine. And uh, it keeps blinking at them. He did not have them smash the lights that are on the panel of their car. Instead, he said, you know what? Uh, your, your lights are blinking in a way that indicates your car is weak. Your car needs adjustment. It needs education. It needs to be realigned. Don't smash the light because you're going to need that light down the road. But what I want you to do is educate yourself. I don't want the whole church to be full of weak Christians. I want the weak Christians to become strong Christians. In fact, in uh, Romans 14, I was just going through my devotions this morning, and we got to a, a, a place, and I'm going through the NIV, and it, it brought out a facet of it, and I looked it up in the New King James, and sure enough, it's, it's the same, but it really brought it out brightly in the NIV that it said that they were not allowed to allow the weaker brother to condemn that which God approves, okay? Once they condemn what God approves... You know, God approves of eating meats. He approves of drinking wine and things like that. They have gone from being a weaker brother into being a Pharisee. The weaker brother is dealt with very gently in Romans 14. He says, accept the weaker brother. Don't condemn him. You know, don't uh, make him feel bad and don't make him go against his conscience. Accept him. But he says, but not to disputes over doubtful things. If he becomes disputatious, then he's going to cause division. He's going to be making his weaker doctrine the stronger doctrine. He's going to try to conform the whole church to that, in which case he falls into the category of 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he is, uh, he is imposing doctrines of demons. Can you see the difference? If a person's weaker, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, so long as he keeps it to himself as he's working this through, no problems. The moment he starts teaching it, it becomes a problem. 
And so he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So he says, what do you do to realign this conscience? You teach them. You tell them not to be teaching uh, their doctrines. Don't get married, don't eat meat, and, and things of that nature. nature. And uh, you, 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 you fix the light. You don't ignore it. You don't smash it. Now turn to Romans 2, 14 through 15, for another area in which the unregenerate conscience has degenerated. And I speak of this as being the social conscience. And unfortunately, more, you know, many times Christians are more affected by the social conscience, the orientation toward the approval and disapproval of others than they are by a God-directed conscience, the approval and disapproval that God gives. But Romans, uh, let's see, where are we? Romans 2 and verses 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts for their conscience also, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Okay, so here we see the presence of God's law, and many times unbelievers will outwardly obey God's law. It's written on their heart, and there is this, this, um, this consensus to follow after the laws. But I want you to notice the social aspect. It says between themselves. What goes on between themselves? That's what we speak of as the social realm, right? Between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And since believers have taken God out of the picture, what judges their conscience? It's the opinions of man, Right? That becomes the strong thing in their lives. In fact, one man defined the conscience as being the inner anticipation of the opinion of others. Well, it shouldn't be that, but I think it's an accurate description of the way the conscience many times works. It's the inner anticipation of the approval or the disapproval of other people. What are they going to think of me? And then my conscience begins to be uh, troubled by that. In fact, uh, I've, I've had times in my past where I've experienced this in my own life uh, where I knew, because of my studies of the Scripture, I knew what I was doing was right. God commanded it of me. I should be doing it. But because there were people who were disapproving of my behavior, my conscience was kicking in. And here was this flash. You shouldn't do this, Phil. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. And I just felt bad in my conscience. I don't know if any of you have experienced this. That is the social conscience kicking in. And the more we align our conscience to what God says it ought to be doing, the less we're going to be sucked in by the approval or disapproval of other people. Your conscience has substituted man's obligation for God's obligation. And by the way, People who are primarily aligned to a social conscience can easily be swayed in the direction of approving the most abominable things, things that previously they thought were abominable. That's what's happened in America. You know, 50 years ago, people say, you know, people would never have done that. Their consciences would dictate it. No, it's an abomination. I could never do that. 
So how come they have slid so far? Well, I believe it's because 50 years ago they did not have a conscience that was directed and influenced toward God. It was a social conscience. Back then, the social mores that were all around them said homosexuality was wrong. Abortion is wrong. You go down the list, it's all wrong. But now that there is people in academia who say, no, this is right, and there's more and more people who are justifying it, and the media stands in it, all of the pressures of the social conscience goes down, and hey, I don't feel any pressure any longer that my behavior is wrong. People come out of the closet and admit to uh, abominable types of things. And here's the, here's the irony again. There are people out there <clears throat> whose consciences are really exercised over things that are not that important. Um, you know, the politically correct speech. You know, how you should talk and how you shouldn't. And... And um, uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, how you, how you speak about homosexuality and whether you can smoke in, you know, in a, in a room or something like that, they're very exercised about that, have absolutely no conscience whatsoever, homosexuality, abortion, you know, and other, other evils. In fact, you know what? I was just reading, I was just reading at the paper the other day. It's just, it shouldn't be astonishing. I'm just telling you, you shouldn't be astonished. And here I am astonished. You know, there, there are psychologists now. They've written a book saying that we should decriminalize pedophilia, that children have rights too, you know, and they have the right to choose who they want to be with and that kind of, uh, that kind of a thing. And there are more and more academics who are saying, no, homosexuality used to be treated this way, uh, the, the way the pedophilia is. Anything goes. Anything goes if you've just got a socially oriented uh, conscience. Anyway, I, sh I should not go down all these rabbit trails. Um, look at Romans 1. Here's, an, here's the illustration of what we've just been talking about. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then Paul goes on to show how they, their substitution of creaturely standards for God's standards eventually means that they are given up by God unto uncleanness, homosexuality, and other gross sins. And that phrase repeatedly given, he gave them up, or he gave them over. It's a scary, it's a scary phrase. Uh, it means that his restraining grace has been completely removed uh, from their lives. Prior to World War II, Germany, you, you look in some of the journals of that time, Ge Germany was noted for their civilized morality, is the phrase that was used. Civilized morality. But it was only a social morality and it let them down because as some of the restrictions were taken off by the government and new uh, evils were introduced and that they began to be called right, what used to be called evil, it was amazing the number of people who said, I don't know what came over me. But, you know, they were doing things that before they would have cried out against. 
Romans 1, verse 32, it says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so the law, the inner judge, the executive function have been totally turned around in their lives. Now let me end today by reading a few scriptures which speak of the evil nature of that conscience. You know, even in unbelievers, they've got a conscience, but the scripture says it's evil. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, here is a description of the conversion of any person. He says his inner heart has been sprinkled from an evil conscience and then outwardly they've been baptized with water. That means every unbeliever's conscience is an evil conscience. It could be a sensitive conscience, insensitive, or dead, but it's still an evil conscience. Let me read you another verse along those lines. Titus 1.5 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. And if you look through some of the other verses that I've included in your outlines there, it speaks of a darkened conscience, a, a blinded conscience, uh, and uh, it shows the conscience going off in wrong directions. Whether it's prompting these people to do good or to do bad, the conscience is evil. Why? It's not aligned toward God. It's aligned to what other people think of you. Let me end with three scriptures that indicate the final result for any who would ignore the promptings of the conscience. Turn with me, first of all, to Proverbs 30. And, you know, Proverbs is a marvelous passage. We've, you know, we've gone to Genesis chapter 3 for so many things, our whole series, you know, on, on uh, resisting uh, high-pressure sales uh, came out of there, but... But Proverbs, anytime you have a struggle you're going through in your family and you say, what in the world does God's word say about this problem we're going through? Read through the whole book and write down everything it says about that subject and you will be amazed at the wealth of wisdom that you'll find in the book of Proverbs. That's what it's intended for. Uh, I've gone through the book I don't know how many times, just reading through the book and say, okay, here's a new study. <laughs> what does Proverbs say about this given, uh, about this given subject? But here uh, is uh, Proverbs 30 and verse 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I have done no wickedness. Okay, the sin has become such a lifestyle for her. She can do wickedly and think, hey, there's nothing wicked about this. Hey, there's nothing wrong whatsoever. And as I read the newspapers today of people coming out of the closet, taking pride. And they will commit something that is an evil. You can show them that it's an evil and they'll say, there's nothing wrong with this. It's exactly the same process of deadening that's happening in their conscience. And what's happening in the Christian is there is a spiritual desertion. The Lord is backed off from their life. He's saying, you've resisted, you've resisted my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to back off from your life and allow you to plummet into different kinds of sins till you're brought up short and you call out help. And the Lord then will come in and he'll realign. Jeremiah 6 verse 15 describes a dead conscience. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. 
they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. You know, when a nation no longer knows how to blush, when an individual no longer knows how to blush, it's indicating their conscience has been completely messed up. You know, it just amazes me at how Christian women will dress. And I sometimes shake my head and say, do they not have any ability to blush? I mean, everything that they're revealing. But you know, I think of the same thing about swimming and bathing suits. Why is it that when we're basically wearing underwear in swimming, that it doesn't bother us? You know, I've said many times in the past, I'm not going to teach on this and impose my legalism <laughs> on other people. But, you know, the scripture says we ought to be covered. We would be ashamed to walk around in our underworld. Maybe not anymore, you know, all that you see in the, in the newspaper. But why is it that we're not ashamed? It's because everybody does it. There's nothing wrong with this. Everybody does this. They don't even think of it as pur prurient, right? It's just the most natural thing. I think we need to think about whether or not that is appropriate or not. Should we be judging our behavior, even in the areas of covering, by what other people say is appropriate and is not appropriate, or should we do be doing it by what God says? I'm not going to tell you the solution to that. I still struggle over things like clothing, you know? How far do you go? You know, you don't want to become legalistic, but you need to evaluate what does God think? You need to evaluate, you know, when the scriptures talk about courtship and dating. Is my opinion, you know, that courtship is weird because people think it's weird or God thinks it's weird? I think, no, God thinks dating is weird. We, we've got to think through these issues. Is our conscience being governed by God's word and his word alone or is it being governed by what other people think? Okay, let me give you one more. Turn with me to Amos 6, 1 through 5. I've been probably talking too long. Amos 6, it's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, then Amos. Amos 6, 1 through 5. <clears throat> Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. When sinners are at ease an indication there's something wrong with their conscience because the conscience is designed to make sinners be not at ease, right? So he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So here's the orientation of their conscience. Their trust is in men. It's not a trust in God. He goes on, Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Now, they think that they're better than these other people. Their conscience tells them that they're better. But he says they really are not. He says, woe to you who put far off the day of doom. Okay, they're smashing the executive part of their conscience. And they're saying, you know, it's blinking. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. And they're saying, I don't even want to think about that. You know, they, they cover it over, you know, sort of like we've got masking tape here uh, <laughs> holding this up. I don't know how that happened, but... They're covering it over, and they're saying, I don't want to think about judgment. They're putting it off. They're saying, get behind me, conscience. I don't even want to think about it. And so he says, they're putting far off the day of doom. 
who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flocks and calves from the midst of the stall, who chant to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. When you begin to see how important the conscience is in terms of our alignments, just that alone, I think it'll make you see it is worthwhile to do as, as uh, Paul did and work hard at aligning our conscience. Now, Charles Spurgeon said he was a fool who killed the watchdog because it alarmed him when thieves were breaking into his house. If conscience upbraids you, feel its upbraiding and heed its rebuke. It is your best friend. Now, next week we're going to be talking how to train your best friend. You know, instead of this dog barking, you know, when there aren't any thieves around, you're going to train it to be quiet. And you're going to train it to bark when the thieves do come into the house to break in. But we do need to treat it as a best friend. And so we're going to leave that for a later lesson. What I want you to take home today is understand what does a good conscience look like? What does a bad conscience look like? And how am I relating to those three areas? Let's quickly go through each three. First, the sense of the law or the legislative side. The question is, whose law? Whose law is governing my conscience? In your case, is it man's law or is it God's law? When you train your children, are you training them to uh, have a conscience that's more and more sensitive to man's law or a conscience that's more and more sensitive to his law? What about your own lives? Are you submitting yourself to the legalism of man? Have you added, I grew up in a culture that had all kinds of rules and regulations of what we could not do. Men could not grow beards. Women could not wear pants, even if they were feminine pants. Uh, what were some of the other rules? You couldn't, let's see, don't eat, don't dance, don't drink. Um, uh, it just went down. There's a big, long list of things. Uh, yeah, in our, uh, not all of them do that, but in ours, we couldn't uh, uh, watch any movies, Walt Disney or anything. And what was happening is they were saying, they were preaching, you're not under law, you're under grace. Okay, so we ignored God's law. What instantly happens? Your conscience needs law. It makes up law. It turns to man's law. And so we've got to ask ourselves, am I submitting my conscience to the dictates and the laws of man? If I am, automatically my conscience is going to become less and less sensitive to God's law, and it's going to become more and more sensitive to the approval of, uh, uh, of men. So think through. Whose law? Whose law is governing your conscience? Fix the light. Uh, the second thing that the conscience has a sense of <clears throat> is uh, a being judged. But again, judged by who? Is it men who judge your conscience? Why don't you turn with me to Galatians 1 and verse 10. This is a very convicting passage. It's convicted me. Maybe none of you have the problems I've worked through of, of uh, fearing man. I still sometimes operate in terms of the fear of man. And it's a snare, the scripture says. The fear of man is a snare. But look at Galatians 1 and verse 20. No, Galatians 1 verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of God. Those are heavy words. He's saying if your conscience 
is so aligned toward a social conscience and everything you're doing, you're doing to please men, he says, you're not a servant of Christ. You've got to align your conscience and say, conscience, I want in everything I do to please God. Even though they're disapproving, I have God's smile of approval upon me. So who is judging your conscience? The Westminster Confession says only God can be the Lord of your conscience. Phil Kaiser cannot. If I cannot prove what I am telling you from the Scripture, you need to ignore it. You have to submit your heart to the Scriptures, not to Phil Kaiser. <clears throat> now, finally, our conscience has a sense of satisfaction or pain that comes as a result of the approval or the disapproval of others. That's the executioner. And let me tell you something. If you don't have the fear of God, you are automatically going to begin to have the fear of man. Your conscience was built to have fear. It has to have fear. It's just the very nature of it to have fear. And so if it is not fearing God and operating out of a desire to please Him and to see His approval and, uh, and uh, fearing His disapproval, automatically we're going to be fearing man's approval and coveting, fearing man's disapproval and coveting man's approval. That's the orientation of the conscience. Now, the fear of man can manifest itself in so many different ways. If we feel that we're better than others, then we can feel just great. And as soon as somebody's better than us, we can feel bad. Uh, we can become arrogant. We can become proud. It can take on overconfidence or loss of confidence, self-esteem, loss of self-esteem, security, insecurity, seeking the limelight, fearing the limelight, depending on where we see ourselves compared to the social mores that are out there. He says, that's a snare. That, that is a snare. You've got to live in terms of the fear of God. And so the only homework that I have for you today is evaluate your conscience. As you have seen the scriptures, does it line up as a good conscience or does it line up as a conscience that needs to be changed? Commit yourself to changing that conscience. Do not allow the fear of man to dissuade you from that. Ask, whose laws are my conscience being bound by? Who is the judge and Lord of my conscience? And who has captured the fear of my conscience? And may it be the Lord. May it be a God-directed conscience that uh, ushers us into the perfect liberty that the law of God alone can do. God says his law is the perfect law of liberty in James. And I just admonish you. I admonish you to pursue a conscience that is free of the snare of man. Amen.